In this podcast, I will be having conversations about where our experience of life comes from. My goal is to support GPs in the overwhelming job that they do. The good news is that you can hang up your superhero cape and let go of needing to be everything to everyone. There we are. So my guest today is Dr. Indra Barathan, a former NHS GP who now practices functional medicine in her clinic in Leeds, um, which is a multidisciplinary clinic. So welcome, Indra, and thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. I'm really interested in what you're doing in functional medicine because it seems to me like it's just the kind of holistic approach that I would have loved to have had the time to take when I was in clinical practice. Can you tell us a bit more about it? No, thank you so much for having me, Joe. I'm really excited uh, for this conversation. And, you know, part of my service, I feel, is to try and get people to understand this way of working because I really realise how powerful it is and how patients really, really benefit from this functional approach. Mm. So we started, well, I started the practice about six years ago coming, I was in general practice at that time and went to my course and thought, oh my God, why are we not doing this kind of medicine? Yeah. A lot of conversation about evidence-based, what, what does it really mean? Can we actually do it? Do we have the time? Lots of thinking going on about whether this was right, wrong, left, right, whatever. But I knew in, in me that this was the kind of medicine I wanted to practice. So functional medicine is root cause medicine. You know, it's really getting down to why the patient is feeling unwell. And technically we should be doing that anyway, but it feels like we're going a bit deeper um, into the whole of the patient, not just the biochemistry, everything that encompasses the health of that human being sat in front of us. So it's, it's a wonderful way of looking at health. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned for myself is knowing that we have innate health within us. And that has been totally transformative because I always was thinking I was trying to fix someone or I should be knowing what to do so that they will feel better. I was trying to make them feel better. Actually, they need to find out what they need to feel better. There's a total shift in how to approach a, a patient. Yeah really is isn't it because I mean we've been taught how to fix people <laughs> and it's it's so interesting that I remember a lot about pathology yeah but how do we create health and that was a question that was posed at a recent conference I went to and I thought oh my gosh I don't think I've ever thought about how I create health or that's what I'm doing now, but to actually see it in that way kind of tips it on the head a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, we, in the NHS, we work with a sickness model, not with a health model. 
yeah, it's it's uh, when people are getting to that point that they are not able to manage, they're like, right, fix me so I can carry on managing. Yeah, in the life that I'm living. Yeah, it, it's not what can I do to live more healthily. Yes, it's more about. I mean, there's nothing wrong with any of the medications. Uh, they all have a massive place in even what we do now um, because they do work. They do have their place. But actually, once they have settled the symptoms, we want to understand, well, what got you here? How, how did you get to this place? How did you end up feeling like this? Because yeah. I think one thing that people or myself and the patients don't quite get is that things don't drop out of the sky. There's always been little things happening. You don't suddenly develop a chronic illness like blood pressure or diabetes or autoimmune conditions. It feels like that because you finally get that little label stuck onto you. Yeah. But actually there's probably been a series of little guiding posts or flares that have been happening through your life that you probably haven't even considered as being of any consideration that's ended up in this little bow and a little label, rheumatoid arthritis. Wow. Yeah. I, and we're used to seeing rheumatoid arthritis as very much a thing that yeah just come out of the blue and it might be genetic or whatever but not seeing it as a product of how we live yeah 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 i mean what i said at the beginning that the fact that we have innate health within us or innate well-being and that comes down to the fact that our immune system knows what it needs to do so if it is creating autoantibodies, I ask myself, why is it doing that? Yeah. I've started for myself sort of saying even to my thyroid patients, our thyroid, like when our TSH is off and we're hypothyroid, it makes us feel low. It slows us down. Our brain doesn't feel right. We put on weight. So I've kind of turned it on its head and kind of said to my patients, why is your body telling you to slow down? And that stops people. Yeah. And then it makes them think, they're like, oh, this and this and this and this is going on. Maybe I do need to slow down. And then I give this analogy of, I can give you some thyroxine, which is fine if it what fits the criteria and it's the right thing to do but if your brake is on and then I try to put the accelerator on what's going to happen you're just going to spin so how are you going to feel better that's really interesting because that's what we do isn't it when someone tips up with a primary hypothyroidism, what do we do? We give them thyroxine and titrate it up and, and don't really see any other kind of input that might be required. And 
it's also interesting seeing a disease as being a message from our body. Yeah. It's not something we're used to thinking, is it? Well, I, that's complete, was completely a new way of approaching it and using our body as a guide what is actually happening around us. You know, and that, you know, there's a colleague of mine that I've worked with who calls it like love letters. And I just think that's such a kind way to look at your wonderful body, how it's gently telling you, you know what, I need a bit of something. Those little headaches that you had in your teens, the little bit of, you know, feeling a bit anxious here and there those little kind of, oh yeah, I wasn't able to open my bowels occasionally. All of these, a little bit of indigestion here. They're all little signs that I need a bit of extra support. Yeah. Or I need you to slow down. I need you to give me some extra nutrients. Yeah. These are all, you know, they're all there. It's whether we're slow enough to stop and actually see what it is that it's trying to tell us. Yeah. And, and that's turning our lives on its head in itself, isn't it? Because actually there's also the paradigm, which is we have to speed up to get everything done, not slow down to listen to the messages. Yeah. And I found that over the years of practicing with my patients, I'm speaking more to the value of rest and to the value of doing less than sitting there telling them, you need to take these 50 supplements, you need to do this, that, and the other. It's actually about, let's take a breath. Let's slow down. Let's see what is innately you and really trust. I mean, all of us have had a gut feeling at some point in our lives. Yeah. And we don't understand the power of that gut feeling. And if we could all just maybe follow that gut feeling, you just don't know where it's going to take you. No, no. And and sometimes it's it's a very physical gut feeling, isn't it? So that our gut symptoms are what's telling us telling us what we should do differently yeah either to move away or to move towards yeah. the direction it's uh, it's going towards yeah I I you know I I see that and I hear that and you know even in my, in my GP practice now sort of reflecting back on my patients as I was coming to the end of being in NHS I knew about the power of the food and using food as medicine and realizing the impact that food has. I reflect back on all our patients that I've asked, you know, do you think food has anything to do with this? And everybody has said something, oh yeah, I know when I eat that sandwich, don't feel so great. Or I know if I eat or if I drink that milk, mm, not sure that I feel okay. So I've always just turned it round to them and said, well, what happens if you take it out for a couple of weeks? 
And I remember one patient, he was coming up to his retirement and he was struggling with arthritis. He was in pain. He'd been on loads of different medication. And I had learned about the impact of inflammatory foods. And I was like, I, I can't give him any more codeine. Like the, it was very limited what more that I could try. He'd been to physio. So I said, had you thought of food? It just came to me to ask him. And he goes, yeah, I, but nobody's ever said that that's okay. And I said, well, why don't we try it and see what happens? Yeah. Just, just try, take away your main sources of gluten and just see. He came back six weeks later and he's like, doctor, I can move my arms. I can, I can move and I'm not in pain. Not everybody's as quick as that, but he just happened to, we happened to have hit the thing that made a difference. And he said, you know what? I know now I'm going to have a fabulous retirement. I was so not looking forward to retirement. And now I know that if I do eat gluten, I'm going to feel but So I'm going to make a choice. I, I reviewed him a couple of times after that, and he'd been absolutely fine. From a functional perspective, we probably wanted to go in and dive in and kind of heal his gut a bit more. Yeah. It's enough. It's about allowing patients to live their life. Yeah. And go as far as they want to go. Yeah. Absolutely. If moving his arms and walking around and being able to enjoy his retirement, perfect. That's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I hear what you say about it's not usually quite as fast and, you know, kind of dramatic, but then how many years has the process taken to get the patient where they are now? Yeah, it's, it's often, I mean, I think there's even research that is saying to us that autoimmune antibodies are there, I think, five to 10 years before wow. you get the diagnosis. So if your immune system has already been trying, it's hard to rebalance yourself and, you know, do what it needs to do to protect you. Yeah. It's probably been there for that amount of time, really. I, yeah, it, it's very interesting as well, thinking about the symptoms being a protection mechanism. So we see the autoimmune diseases as some kind of dysfunction of our immune system, but actually it's not a dysfunction, is it? It's, it's another message. Yeah, and I say to my patients, you know, we're, we're always looking for the root causes of inflammation. Yeah. Because the imbalance in your inflammation, as far as I can tell, I haven't found any chronic illnesses that are not got a basis in inflammation but most of them have a basis in inflammation i'm a medic i can never say all <laughs> you know it's always most mostly um so if there is always an imbalance of inflammation going on what are the key triggers for inflammation yeah talk about stress or trauma or some kind of mental emotional spiritual we talk about nutrition and nutritional deficiencies, talk about allergies, talk about toxins, and talk about chronic infections. There are others, but those are like my five key ones. And as soon as I explain that to patients, they're like, oh yeah, I had this and I've done this and this, and then I'm living 
in a state of stress. So you've got, if you've got three pins at the bottom of your foot, triggering your immune system, if you take one away, you might get a bit better, but you probably need to take the other two away to feel 100% better. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, each one as you take it away is going to give you some relief. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that allows us to kind of go as far as the patient wants to. And, if you know, I think mindset has a lot to play with how we how we experience our symptoms yeah i last time you and i spoke you said something really interesting that i wrote down actually and looked at afterwards and thought wow um you said that actually inflammation comes from thought just really kind of that really boggled my mind completely <laughs> it's i heard that at a conference and it just resonated yeah. Because how we view the world sends messages of safety or not to our body. Yeah. So our thought or the ability to think is what drives our immune system. Yeah. Because our immune system is there to protect us. So if we're in a state where we don't feel safe, not like a like a physical safety, like an emotional or a, a body safety. Your body is always going to be on high alert. It's trying to keep you safe. It's like, where is that save the tooth tiger? You know, for me in general practice, it was like my 70 uh, emails that I needed to reply to or the 100 results that I needed to <laughs> deal with in the next 20 seconds. Yeah. And I didn't realize how much of it I was creating. No, of course not. And, and it's only when you step back, isn't it, and kind of lift your head and look around and think, hang on a minute, that you realize when you're deep in it, it's hard to see, I think. Yeah, it's very hard to see. It's, it's, it's having that light shone to sort of say, hmm, what, you know, one of the things I've been talking a lot on recently is about the vagus nerve. Oh, yeah. And I love the analogy of the polyvagal theory and the fact that there's kind of three parts to the vagus nerve. Um, and one is, I think it's the dorsal ventral. I need to check that, but I think it's the dorsal. And that's the oldest part of the parasympathetic. Ah. And that is, I call it the red zone. And I think some people else have called it the red zone as well. It's when everything shuts up. It's your play dead. It's that reptilian brain that says, I am in absolute danger. I need to die, like stop, stop. So you have, you have like really chronic depression. You can't get out of bed. Your pain senses are really heightened. So you're just out. How many patients do we know that are like that? Yeah. And, and how do you find a cause using our usual approach? So then you have the yellow zone, which is your sympathetic. 
these are this is when you're you know getting ready to go you know you're at the traffic lights you're looking around you're sensing the danger and the biochemical changes that are happening there your reduced salivary glands your reduced gastric acid your reduced pancreatic acid your gut motility changes your immune system changes how many of us spend our lives in a state of worrying about the past, thinking about the future, reflecting on everything? Oh, why did I say that? Oh, my God, what happened there? Yeah. All of that is sending signals to your body. I need to be ready. So we're on constant high alert. So it's your yellow zone. And then we have the beautiful green zone, which is that love, that joy, the connection, the flow, all of that starts to increase your gastric acid secretion, allows bile to flow effectively, allows the gut to move as it needs to. So how can we expect to digest our food when we're not in the green zone? That's a really good question. <laughs> so when you, when I, when I've loved that explanation to patients because it's meant that they get it they say to me i'm in the yellow and red zone and it's okay to be in yellow and red zone because we do need to keep ourselves safe and there are times you know if a bear's running at you you want to be able to play dead and you know just (laughs) freeze and that's it but we don't really think of ourselves ever getting into the green zone And that is your rest, digest, and heal. So that's where it would be better to be most of the time, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. There's a book, I think it's some uh, zebras don't get ulcers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure about the research behind it, but I think he mentions in that book that you need to be in that green zone 30 minutes a day, every two or three days. I say in the, in the yellow zone and the red zone, 30 minutes a day, every two or three days. All right. Okay. Just keep things kind of working well. Because that's, that's natural to us. And we're supposed to spend majority of our day in the green zone. Yeah. Can I ask a question then? Since you left the NHS, are you in the green zone most of the time? I am quite a lot of the time in green zone. Brilliant. I have an awareness of going into the yellow and red. Mm. And I think having an awareness means the impact is less on my body. Yeah. Um, it's not easy running your own business. It's you know, there's a whole load of new skills that I've needed to learn. Um, but I try to stay in the green zone when I'm seeing a patient. Yeah. Because when we are most connected, we're more likely to see what the patient needs. Yeah. And that's when you can access your inner wisdom, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, at the recent conference that I was had, somebody was speaking and I realized that a lot of, the consultations before, prior to having this understanding, was done with an element of 
a construct of fear. Right. In the sense that we are protecting ourselves. Have we done everything to rule out anything that could make the patient complain, I guess is the right way of thinking about it. Yeah. And I kind of reflected and I thought, oh my gosh, I didn't consciously go into it, but that's the sort of realization that I had. Yeah. And how powerful would it be if we can be aware of that, but go into the consultation full of heart to see the patient that's in front of us. Yeah. And sometimes what comes out, you probably wouldn't have ever considered even telling them. But that's exactly what the patient needed to hear. Yes. And as well, when the patient feels hurt at a very deep level, that in itself is therapeutic, isn't it? Yeah. The, the, the power of the therapeutic relationship is taught when I was taught about it when I did my GP training, but I'm not sure I kept up with that. <laughs> that sort of realization of the power of somebody in your space and the, the, the you know, the, the, um, the privilege of being in that space with another human being and having some form of knowledge that could actually potentially help them. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a very honorable space to be in. And I just coming to realize that for myself. It sounds like you're doing some amazing work there, actually. I, um, your clinic is actually a multidisciplinary one. So who are you working with? What kind of professionals? So we call ourselves a collaborative care team. Oh, lovely collaborate together. I'm trying to remove the sort of hierarchy that sometimes happens with different disciplines. Um, I feel like we're all humans first and then practitioners second. And yeah. we all come into this world or this space to, to, to help and to, to be there present for them. So we have, um, there's three of us GPs we have an endocrinologist, uh, an endocrinologist joining us. Wow. And we have a psychiatrist working with us as well. We're kind of more focused uh, on sort of mental health and hormones. Uh, we didn't choose it. It chose us. And we love working with patients in, in those, those areas. We also have uh, two um, nutritional therapists. Um, and we have health coaches. Things are changing a little bit in the structure of our team, but in essence, that's our collaborative care team. Yeah, that sounds brilliant. I'm very impressed that, that you've managed to recruit an endocrinologist as well. She's, she's, she's my really good friend. So she's seen my journey and she's like, mm, I wanna look at that, <laughs> see whether that's something I want to do. And I was like, okay, tell me what you think. And she's like, yes, it makes sense. So yeah, hopefully in the next few months, you'll be joining our team. Brilliant. And how do patients find their way to you? Generally word of mouth. 
Mm -hmm. uh, the first set of patients came through the Institute of Functional Medicine Find a Practitioner site. Uh -huh. The Institute of Functional Medicine, where I did my training and got my certification from, have a site where you can go and search up practitioners all around the world. Yeah. Um, and apparently they get over a million hits a year. So a lot of people are accessing this, this way of working, mainly in America, but more so in the UK. Um, so they find us through that. And then since then, we've kind of got together little families now. We've got mom and then daughter and then grandma. It's like like a natural general practice kind of environment. We've kind of collecting little families of people. Oh, that's lovely. I mean, that was one of the things I enjoyed uh, about general practice was having a sense of family and kind of seeing patients in context because of that. Yeah. It's good to know that that has carried over into your work. Yeah, I was really surprised, but it's it's kind of naturally happened yeah. that they've kind of seen and then they kind of think, right, okay, you need to come and see. And then, yeah, so it's been wonderful actually to do that. Brilliant. And are you getting much in the way of kind of kickback from GPs at all from our colleagues who are kind of less open-minded perhaps? I think if they come and spoke to us and we explained exactly what we were doing, it's very hard to push back. Yeah. When you read from the outside, you can probably push back. But I think once you're in it and you see how we're working, you really get a sense of the improved lifestyle, the improved outcomes for our patients. And what we're wanting to do as the practice grows is to actually try and see if we can make public some of the audits that we're doing, which is showing using this kind of functional approach and a collaborative team approach is, is significantly improving patient symptoms yeah. and improving patient's quality of life within four months of working. That, that's really good, isn't it? Because many of these patients have been going backwards and forwards to their NGPs for years. Yeah. With intractable symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just so lovely to see it. It's, it's not fast. Yes. Is, is still quite uh you know there's still i think the last time we did an audit the things about 15 percent better in symptoms which i think is still quite significant yeah if pain is better mood is better gut is better all of these things are better then bringing in all the mindset work and how we view the world and connecting with our innate well-being just adds another layer to it so it takes away another stimulus to our immune system and yeah. allows the immune system to slow down. Brilliant. And you, you did refer at the beginning of our conversation to an evidence base. Um, we know how, you know, we've been brought up to, to practice evidence-based medicine, haven't we? And I know I'm always having to find evidence-based to show to colleagues about all sorts of things. So wh where have you found the evidence to kind of uh, demonstrate to our colleagues that what you're doing is kind of kosher? 
<laughs> so first of all, I want to really caveat, caveat or put a sort of really focus in on that word evidence-based medicine. Yeah. Where it came from. And at the last conference that I went to, and I've heard this a number of times, evidence-based medicine comes from studies, double-blind crossover studies, but it's got two other components to it. It's got your clinical education and your clinical experience and also patient preference. Yeah. That's what makes up evidence-based medicine. So it's not just the double-blind crossover trials. But for whatever reason, we have really been focused on the double-blind crossover trials. Yeah. And what we're finding is, and at the, the, I was mentioning this conference that I've been to, there is evidence yeah. utilizing certain kinds of nutritional plans, utilizing certain kinds of nutrients that can help on certain pathways that can improve mental health, cardiovascular health, uh, thyroid disease, autoimmune diseases, all of these things, the evidence is coming through. It's just not as open and clear. You probably need to dig a little bit harder, but it's there. That's good to know. I, I think sometimes we put a bit too much blind faith into the published evidence and bearing in mind that being published in a peer-reviewed journal is seen as the ultimate, but our peers are not coming to the review are uh, necessarily completely open-minded. They all have their own biases. Yes. And we don't take that into account. Absolutely. And I think when you look at um, the journals and you start reading them, I never read as many journals until I started doing functional medicine. <laughs> you realize that each piece of evidence is okay it kind of fits together and what i do is i try to put together the evidence for a question that i'm asking you know why is this patient's gut not supported by all of this what's underneath it what does the microbiome tell us what is all of this tell us yeah and you kind of have little pieces from all the different kind of research and it's very easy to find a research that says no and a research to say yes literally in one search engine yeah so then you kind of have to use both of that your clinical expertise and the patient preference that's for me is evidence-based medicine yeah and again it's a holistic approach isn't it yeah which is what is most impressive really about what you're doing yeah definitely and i think with double blind crossover trials we realized that something like a beta blocker works on certain receptors yeah you're going to look at curcumin or cinnamon or one of these it has so many different effects within the body yeah <laughs> balance I, you know you, how do you really kind of look at that it's uh yeah so it's taking and why is it why isn't it okay to just try a different food? Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if it makes a difference, it makes a difference. 
I remember one of my lovely GP colleagues said when I was telling them I'm leaving and I'm going to start my practice, they said to me, so it's all about beetroot, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Beetroot is one of the things that we look at and, you know, what the red foods do and how it improves your nitric oxide. But, you know, a nice rainbow of vegetables as well. Yeah. (laughs) The more colours, the better. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, uh, yeah, it's more than just beetroot. Oh, that's good to know. That might be the quote of the day for this podcast. It's more than just beetroot. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. That's so cool. (laughs) It's just been lovely talking to you, Indra. It really has. And, And while we've been talking, I've just been compiling a list in my head of people that I I'm going to point towards your service I think <laughs> it's it's lovely I and mean, we're, we're developing new services as we go along um, yeah. as our programs of care are quite intensive but yeah. we know they work but not everybody's ready for that so we're sort of organized we're sort of putting together some new programs where you can just see our nutritional therapist for a few months and just work on your nutrition just to see whether, because even just some basic simple changes with guidance and support can be really powerful. And we are actually developing some group courses as well, which are coming out sort of September, October time, where we're going to try and see whether working together in groups of people with say thyroid disease, Mm. we can then impact sort of 10 or 12 people at one go educating, learning, helping them to understand how their thyroid works um, over like a six-week period. Um, So let's start start that process off without necessarily having just one-to-one care with our team. Um, I guess learning from each other as well. There's so much power in that. There's so much evidence, you know, even coming out from the Cleveland Clinic who, who were the very first functional medicine clinic in a hospital they did some research about group care and they found that anybody going through group care made significant improvements to the point they didn't even need one-to-one care. Oh, brilliant. Because things had sorted itself out. They knew the understanding. They had what they, what they needed to, to live their lives. Because we want to give our patients tools. We don't want them to keep coming back to see us. No, we, we don't want to engender dependence, do we? No, we want to see you, educate you, give you the tools that you know how to eat right, sleep right, think right, move right. And off you go. Live live what, how and what, where you want to live. Just go for it. Oh, that is fantastic. It really is. It really has been lovely talking to you, Indrev. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you for having me, Joe. It's been such an interesting conversation. I never know what's going to come through, but yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it will help the next person that is looking to find a different way of working or wanting to explore something else that might help themselves or one of their patients. I really hope so. Thank you so much, Indra.